This was the 13th contemplation, as we know, is about fully experiencing impermanence itself. But if the mind isn't fairly calm and steady, there's not much point in doing this contemplation. And so it's an individual matter and it varies from sitting to sitting. If in this particular sitting, some of you have been sitting for an hour already, and if the mind settles down very quickly and is calm, seems to be able to stick with the breath, and there's some stillness and peace, not necessarily with the depth that we may experience sometimes when we've had many more sittings in continuity or sitting for a longer period of time, but enough to make investigation reasonable. Some degree of even-mindedness. Then, of course, feel free to take up impermanence in any of the ways or in any way that you're attracted to, that you're drawn to. One person may find contemplating the, the, the depth or shallowness of the breath <clears throat> and the way in which that keeps changing. Contemplating that as an object that's interesting and holds our attention. Someone else may be, may be much more attracted to studying a Nietzsche in the body with feelings or just thoughts themselves, seeing thoughts like little blips, come and go, come and go. Again, now the content is subordinated and it's the coming and going of the thinking process that interests us. And sometimes, perhaps when we have more, more time to practice, perhaps on a retreat or at home when you have a larger chunk of practice time, the mind may come into piti or sukha that will be harder for you to do. To turn vipassana on the happiness itself. To bring the eye of wisdom to a state that we want very much to just roll in. Instead, we would see it as also subject the same laws that all conditioned things are subject to.
coming and going, change. And more and more the practice now can become quite creative and flexible. The variations on the 16 lessons can be taken up in ways which are unique to you. Especially if you've been doing it thoroughly from the beginning through the end. It's a bit like orchestrating a keyboard. But the simplest way to look at it is that we're calming and steadying the mind. That is, all the steps up to step 12 are either samatha or exercises in tranquility, the development of tranquility, or it's tranquility plus some vipassana. We've been learning stuff all along. How can you not? But now from 13 onwards, 13 through the 16th contemplation, it's the pure practice of wisdom, always aided by the strength of samadhi. Strong relationship between the degree of stability of mind and the depth of wisdom that's possible to be revealed. And it's a lifetime practice, endlessly refining our ability to know ourselves and to act out of that wisdom. While doing your samadhi practice right now, you find you find that the mind doesn't settle down sufficiently. You don't feel real, really feel ready to do insight into impermanence practice. Perhaps there's some hindrances still quite alive and active in this sitting. Maybe the mind is very, very dull and tired after a hard day's work. Perhaps there's some unfinished business in your life and the mind is agitated about it. And realistically, in this particular sitting, and we take it a sitting at a time, it doesn't seem to be sensible to look into impermanence If that's so, don't feel there's anything wrong with that. Keep the samadhi practice going. And even if this is true beyond this sitting, then put much of your attention in the development of calm 
and the teachings on impermanence are can be seen as seeds. So that when you're, the level of calm is adequate, whatever that is in your practice, whether it's the next sitting or a hundred sittings from now, or a thousand. Somewhere you'll remember some of the importance of seeing that everything that arises passes away. And that's the gateway to the remainder of this tetrad, the four remaining contemplations. They all flow out of the thirteenth. You've already begun the fourteenth when doing the thirteenth. If there is real seeing into the impermanence over and over again, no matter what the object is, Sometimes what you'll also see as a natural outcome is less attachment, less grasping and clinging. And the fourteenth contemplation is the direct observation of the fading away of attachment. But you can't really do the 14th, or put it another way, the 14th naturally grows out of the 13th. As our perception of impermanence deepens and strengthens itself, as we begin to see the penalties that nature imposes upon us, suffering, pain, when we cling to things in a changing world. We have to see it often enough. We have to see it with enough depth. We have to look at, look at it very close up. So that its impact on the heart can be substantial. transformative. And so as the perception of impermanence strengthens, you can't help but notice a little bit of the thinning out of grasping. We become more even-minded. There's more equanimity, just quite naturally. Unbiased, we're able to be aware of whatever is there. And so we're learning some of the lessons of the 14th in the 13th. If there's a very deep, sometimes there can be a very deep and profound insight into impermanence. With it can come a dramatic dropping away and the tendency to cling and grasp and hold and suffer. By and large, what happens is we catch glimpses There are flashes of light that come and go, 
And so the, the hold of attachment eases up a bit. There's more space in our life. The breath flows more freely. And in the 14th, the perception of impermanence has become very powerful. And we're watching, we're taking up the fading away of attachment itself as the object of contemplation. And that will just come naturally out of your practice. Similarly for the 15th and 16th. So for the remainder of our time together, we'll be working with the 13th, with Samadhi and the 13th. And I hope that the teaching familiarizes you with what's possible as the samadhi deepens and the perception of impermanence deepens. How that perception, far from being bad news, becomes actually the the means of tasting really deep freedom. Finally, nirvana, nibbana. The unconditioned. Everything we know, everything we're studying is conditioned. Our practice deals with two vital issues. Conditioned reality which is constantly changing, which can't in its nature have ultimate fulfillment as it flows naturally from the uncertainty of a changing world, the fact that things come and go, that they change in ways in which we can't possibly anticipate. There's a certain lack of dependability because of that. And so change and unsatisfactoriness are two sides of the same coin. The unsatisfactoriness or the suffering is not necessarily dramatic pain in the moment inflicted on you by change sometimes much more subtle it's in the nature of the way things are something about the the passingness itself and then out of impermanence as well comes that crown jewel of anatta there is no self There's nothing that can stand up to this law of change and unsatisfactoriness, nothing outside it, independent of it, which can stand up to it. And stop it. 
And to see the change in things, incessant change, is to see the absence of self, of selfhood in things. understand the relationship between change and anatta, not-self. What we're saying is to be with impermanence is to be without self. And we come to know this truth as well as we can, as deeply as we can. And that helps us not attach to things to experience them, to use them, to live with them, even to enjoy them, but not to attach. The mind that isn't attached to anything and this comes out of the study of impermanence is able to realize permanence. What in the Buddhist tradition is referred to as Nibbana. The unconditioned. For the moment, think of a simple phrase like the stream is flowing, or the stream flows, or else there's water in the stream. Is there really a stream that flows? That's just a word. There's just flowing. There's nothing separate from the flowing. It's just the name. But we talk that way. The stream is flowing. Or we say there's water in the stream. As if it's two separate things. Is there really a stream that flows? And to understand flowing is to understand anatta. Only not in the stream, but in ourselves. I'll read the 14th contemplation. Please let it sink in. Hear it with as much 
openness as possible, really listen. I think I'll read the 13th and the 14th again because they are so interrelated. In the 13th, I'm breathing in and constantly contemplating the impermanent nature of all dhammas, that is, of all things. I'm breathing out and constantly contemplating the impermanent nature of all dhammas. The yogi practices like this. In the 14th, I'm breathing in and constantly contemplating the fading away of all dhammas. I'm breathing out and constantly contemplating the fading away of all dhammas. The yogi practices like this. You could put in, this could be retranslated to read, constantly contemplating the fading away of attachment to all dhammas. And so the deeper we go into the 13th, as mentioned, seeing change, seeing an unsatisfactoriness that seems to be part of the way things are, that flows quite naturally out of seeing that things are uncertain, forever changing in ways that are not predictable, and seeing that there is no independent self that's strong enough to stand up to this process to control it, to direct it. The more distinctly we see that, and it comes out of the seeing of impermanence, the more the kilesas fade away, the more weary we become of them. They begin to peter out and disappear. They fade. Things which normally we would have strong cravings for, or strong aversion to. We now watch with a certain even-mindedness and equanimity, upeka, extremely important quality in our practice, equanimity. So in the 13th, we already at times see impermanence lead to the dissolving of attachment. So we've already begun the 14th in the 13th. The more we see impermanence, the more there's letting go. This doesn't come out of will or out of following orders but out of learning, out of deeply seeing things as they are, that whatever arises, passes. And even a glimpse of this 
eases our attachments, things ease up a bit. And in the 14th, we take up the fading away of attachment itself as the object, as it happens. So, of course, it must happen for us to be able to take it up. And for it to happen, one way in which it comes about is through this contemplation of impermanence, which is more and more fruitful as the samadhi gets stronger. Remember, each lesson is about the end of impermanence, rather the end of suffering. All of the Buddhist teachings is about identifying suffering, knowing it if it's there, seeing the cause, especially craving, attachment, and then seeing the end of it. And so the understanding of impermanence or change or flux You could say aliveness. To be alive is to change. It's the beginnings of fading away, of letting go. Letting go of what? It could be anger, it could be hatred, it could be lust, fear, worry. They fade away as equanimity replaces the way we used to relate to these mind states, strongly resisting them, strongly catching on to them. So the fading away of attachment is a natural and inevitable result of realizing the impermanence, the unsatisfactoriness, and the absence of selfhood that characterizes life. It's wisdom that does this. Wisdom is like a light. As we shine it with more consistency and power, we begin to see things as they are. And everything comes out of that. So part of our job is to observe and study very closely and carefully until we see a Nietzsche dissolve attachment. And we see that come about because we, see, we begin to see that there's a penalty. Nature extracts a price when we get attached in the changing world. It's not meant to be an ideology. It's something for each one of us to test and see. More and more as we see it, the attachments become weaker. They begin to dissolve. You may already have seen some of this in your practice in small ways. And through this persistent and constant 
examining the condition of the mind. That we begin to see that the things which we, out of a sense of delusion, got attached to and got hurt by, we begin to learn how not to do that anymore. Again, this is not so much thinking, but much deeper and direct learning. Much like sticking your hand in the fire, getting burned, and not doing that anymore. And we're burned by greed, by hatred, by delusion, all the time. The Buddha once put it, the whole world is on fire. On fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. It's inward fire, inward torment that the human race often finds itself concerned with. And as we become more comfortable with this lawfulness, more even-minded, more equanimous, more and more are we able to actually see that whatever is there in the moment, whether it's the breath or a bodily state or a mental state, none of it is I or mine. Again, we actually see it. It won't help you unless you actually see it. It's not meant to end as a belief. It's important to understand that impermanence is not just bad news. There's another side to it. As we see things changing, as we see there's nothing but change from moment to moment, really what we're seeing is the nature of being alive. So, for example, if things weren't impermanent, this practice would be hopeless. Why would we want to practice? We'd be like statues. There'd be no possibility of change. Children would never grow up. It's true, they also grow old and die. But children are born to grow up. And so there's more of an ability to see the poignancy, the great value in living. It's not simply a matter of despair and chucking it all. It's coming to a very balanced, intelligent relationship with the way things are. The flowers are beautiful. They look beautiful. They have a beautiful aroma. They can be appreciated enjoyed, contemplated, even serve as inspiration, enlighten the heart, 
and they wither and die. Both are true. If we get attached to the fact that they wither and die, perhaps it winds up, we wind up being afraid of life. If we, we get attached to the p- fact that they're beautiful, that flowers are beautiful, we keep getting hurt, badly hurt, as inevitably they must wither and die. Is it possible for our practice to embrace the fullness of it? That impermanence includes the beauty of the flower, its blooming, and also its withering and death, and that there's a time to enjoy the beauty and a time to let go? And perhaps it's the same with everything. with a meal, with people who are dear to us in our life, whether separations are final or just temporary. As we learn to do this, there's a kind of hardiness, a kind of dharma hardiness that can come out of it. We're not afraid of life. But also, we don't live stupidly, setting ourselves up for unnecessary suffering. But even a small beginning in this direction doesn't seem possible until we examine the nature of attachment, the nature of impermanence, and see the possibilities of living in the moment. with the way that moment is. With a deep understanding that it will be that way because it must run its course and follow its own nature. It's a kind of surrender. Again, not to an ideology, which won't help us very much, but to the truths that you yourself have to learn from nature. You've got to really see it, feel it, chew on it, digest it, make it your own, and live it. assimilate and integrate it into our life in the smallest things and the big things as well. And in this particular part of the practice here, we're doing all of this while we breathe in and we breathe out. Remember that this teaching is all done while we breathe in and we breathe out, whether it's the breath directly that we're observing or any other events having to do with mind or body, nama, rupa. The breath is this ongoing support, this constant friend.
a long out-breath. What did it do for you, a long out-breath? Was there constriction in your chest? Tightness? Anything on anyone's mind? Any questions or reports about your practice? Well, that's one object. Well, I guess this, this practice offers a, this, this particular teaching offers a way to use the breath to observe it permanently. Well, in two ways, uh, Greg. One is by observing the breath directly and seeing that you examine an in-breath, just an in-breath. And you can see that it, it begins and ends. You be, examine an out-breath, more than two, and you can see it begins and ends. Or you begin to see how the breath, each breath does what it does, and then the next one is a little different, the next one's a little different, so the breath keeps changing. That is, uh, long becomes short, and coarse becomes fine, and so forth, and keeping up with seeing all the journey, the full journey of the breathing. And the other way, I mean, that's looking at the breath directly, which I think what you're saying, and seeing impermanence in it. The other is as a um, anchor, as a support as we investigate something else and see the impermanence in that. Anything in the body, anything in the mind. So we, so in some cases we see the impermanence in the breath itself, and in some cases the breath is uh, helping us to see impermanence in whatever. Is that your understanding of the, these 16 contemplations? Yeah, I mean, that's my understanding, but the reality of the this last thing for me was just that, you know, I guess maybe I wasn't tuned in enough to the uh, breath-to-breath change. You know, I could, I could go, oh yeah, like five minutes ago, my breaths are longer and now they're shorter. But mm-hmm. it wasn't like five seconds ago, my last breath was different than this breath. And I was sort of, I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of lulled into this illusion of continuity yeah. that, that, you know, well, you know, no thoughts arose in the last breath, and here's another breath where no thoughts are arising, so it's sort of the same thing as it was just five seconds before it just going on like Yeah, but you know, let's say you, you see that five minutes ago the breath was long and now it's not. It's a start. You've begun to see, you've noticed the change. Uh, and that's, but what you're pointing to is, as the, is the, the crucial role that the calmness plays, the samadhi plays, because as that develops, 
you're able to keep up with each breath in a very fine-grained way, and you can uh, just feel it, even sometimes a slight difference between... It's from breath to breath. It's not five minutes. It's breath, 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 breath. And you can sometimes feel just a very, very slight change in the breath as it starts to become a little bit finer or a little bit co more coarse. Now, when there isn't that support or strength of the samadhi, there's more of a gloss over the breath, and they're all kind of lumped in. Yeah, in-breath. Yeah, out-breath. As a samadhi, it's like being given a, a microscope. And suddenly you're seeing that uh, the changes even from breath to breath. And it's, it can be discerned. You know, sometimes they'll seem you can't tell the difference. Fine, it's not, you don't have to dwell on it. Another way of seeing impermanence in breath, or seeing this arising and passing away, I don't think we've used it, maybe one, I don't think here, is the in-breath and the out-breath. That is, things come and then they go. They come and then they go. And it's another good way of getting a sense of change. You may want to experiment with that. Just feel something's filling up, something's emptying. Aren't we doing that all day long? Things come together and then they end. We bring in some oxygen, some wastes go out. We bring in some oxygen. It's not thinking that, but it's just feeling in, out, in, out. Whichever helps impress upon the heart this lesson, there's no one way to do it. See, actually impermanence is not a big deal. I mean, it's really quite, it's simple. There's nothing so spectacular about it. What is different here is that we're beginning to see how it's wherever you look. And we're being able to penetrate more deeply into it. And mainly we're seeing the impermanence in our own mind, in our own body. It's not just science, let's say, looking at outer reality, which of course is valuable too. But we're see seeing it with increasing breadth and depth. Realms that we thought were solid we see aren't. And the lack of that can be penetrated with increasing power. Now, here's another important thing to understand. When you get a glimpse, there's certain, we use the word insight. I, everyone's getting insights, even people who've never meditated. As you get older, you don't do certain things anymore. You, you've, you make a mistake two million times, and then finally there comes a two millionth and one time. You just don't do it anymore. Yeah, okay, no. And someone says, hey, let's do that. No, 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 I don't do it. That, I've had enough of that one. Okay, you use it up. But not necessarily just the boredom. You see that it's, it hurts you or it's unfulfilling. And you stop. And we all catch glimpses. We have an insight here and an insight there about some of these themes. But the level of conviction that comes from that is not all that strong. You can be talked out of it easily. Just get some fast-talking person with a good ideology or someone, and you'll go in some other direction. Or if it's doubted, oh, you know, come on, that's not so important. Or if no one else around you is seeing the importance of it. Uh, so that they're, they're what are called jnanas. It's a, different, it's a deeper level of insight. We, we have to, we take, we muster up whatever level of wisdom we can and we benefit from it are much deeper levels of insight that you don't need other people's, you're not going to be pushed around by their views and opinions anymore. At that point, more and more you see it for yourself, really see it for yourself. It's the same law, only it's experienced with such depth that you don't need to rely on teachers or books so much. And you're not, 
it starts to really affect how you live. I mean, it becomes a, a principle. Uh, it becomes wisdom in action. That is, it often helps us to live skillfully in a particular situation. Because we know the situation, everything's changing. It's just fluid. Life is just... But, you know, it's, I think it's very easy to look at the impermanence of the everyday. And, you know, for us to sit and watch things arise in the body and the mind that are kind of one-shot occurrences that, yes, well, that's coming up now, that's going, and this is coming up, and now this is going. But the breath sort of is a companion from uh, birth to death that we've always had with us, and that there's somehow there's this uh, bias in the mind that, you know, the breath has a certain hallucinating uh, to it that it's always there. I'm, I'm finding, uh, you know, trying to on a moment-to-moment basis, trying to watch the permanence of the breath itself mm-hmm. uh, a little more difficult. Because, you know, if you look over a time frame, you can say, well, you know, over the longer time frame. But in the moment-to-moment, are we, is the contemplation of the permanence of the breath analogous to just watching the, what we do occasionally, the beginning of the in-breath, the middle of the in-breath, and then the end of the in-breath? Is that basically the model for looking at the impermanence in a single breath that you're just you're watching the arising because you know what I'm hearing about the impermanence is it seems to be just talking about the ending of everything it's not talking about the beginning of everything that everything begins in it it's just like and whatever comes up ends but you know I'm talking about well one way is to just follow you know if you remember we've had a lot of practice let's say the earlier contemplations on tracking the breath being with it as it arises moving with whether it's you know uh, going down to the abdomen and coming up to the nose. You remember some of those earlier ones? Or wh- wherever you decide. It can be even at the nose. Sometimes uh, there's a, a little bit, it's less to, to track. But you can still see beginning, middle, end. Beginning. That's one way. But another way is to see by staying with each breath, really riveting your attention to it. It has to be without strain. You see, you feel an in-breath as, let's say, a certain level of coarseness. And then the very next in-breath is slightly less coarse. And you, you know that. It's something that's felt. It's not, it's not so much weighing and analyzing. Well, how do you know it? How can you go back to the last breath when you were the next breath? Has anyone experienced what I've said? Ever? Yeah. You know, don't underestimate your intelligence. I mean, it's just been a, a second or two before, and there's, there's memory of it, of course. You know, there's, there's a... The in-breath has a certain coarseness or fineness or a certain... Look, sometimes it's very easy. Let's say the breath is... This has happened to me, and perhaps some of you have experienced it. The breath is very fine and deep, and it's going like that. And suddenly there's a worry or some kind of... It can be a simple thought or an angry thought. And suddenly it shrinks and it becomes... becomes agitated and short and you don't feel it down here. You just feel it over here. So that's an easy one. And it can happen in one breath. You, you can be very, very calm and peaceful, and then suddenly, like that. Has anyone ever had it? Yeah, you've seen that. Okay, that is a dramatic and easy way for, to learn that, that the breath is a conditioned, is, is subject to conditions. It keeps changing. And related to that, as you'll see that, just like everything else, there's nothing special about the breath in this sense. That is, we know now that wherever you look, uh, if we could get a, an electronic microscope, we know that all there is is change. There's energy is dancing. And that's being documented externally. But let's just say for here, some of the 
degree of the ability to perceive at the level that I'm suggesting seems to be mainly possible when we have longer periods of time to do this practice. Uh, on a retreat is what I'm suggesting, of course. The longer the better. If you can do a three-month retreat, there's the levels of calm that, come a hard, that are hard to attain until you've done a fair number of them. Then it becomes a little bit more accessible. Now, you don't have to have that, you know, that to see impermanence. You need some level of, of calm to get the message. But you can get tremendously dramatic perceptions of nothing to hold on to. I mean, just everything coming, going, coming, going. Sometimes when the mind gets very, very quiet. And so you, that's another way you learn it. Okay, so let's say, now that's, um, remember, is, you know, I think you brought out a lot about the limitations of teaching 16 contemplations in a mere 20 weeks. It's not just the 20 weeks. That's really not the limitation. It's that we only have two hours and then you all go and run around like crazy all week, right? And so you get a contemplation, just get going, and then you run around like crazy all week. Now, what if we... So, um, I mean, I'm learning too. I'm learning about the feasibility of teaching something like this when it's broken up so much so that there isn't that sense of development of each of the stages. There still can be some if you do it on a daily basis. I know some of you have had the experience of some of the... It, there's some movement, and you're able to take on different contemplations. But I didn't have any grandiose hopes. My sense was uh, to plant some seeds and to give you an opportunity to see uh, if this is a way of practice that's really appropriate for you. And a, a small number of people uh, have really taken to it, and so fine. Then you'll have your whole life to keep developing and refining it, and it's not something that has an end. And each one of them, any one of them, for example, take emptiness, which is a crown jewel in our practice, seeing that no matter what you look at is empty of self. It doesn't have inherent, an inherent nature. It isn't inherently true. I mean, it isn't, it has relative truth. It is true as long as certain causes and conditions obtain. And when those causes and conditions stop, what seem to be forever no longer can hold together because the cause and conditions aren't there. Gorbachev is today sounded like a good Buddhist on the 6 o'clock news. He said the, he was asked about the, uh, destroying the, the Berlin Wall. And he said at the time that the wall was put up, there were conditions that made it reasonable and appropriate to put up a wall, and now it may very well be he didn't you know that those conditions no longer exist that make it necessary to have a wall there. And if that is so, nothing is forever. And so, why? Sure, why can't the wall come down? I said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> what is going on here? Also, you know, if you visit Germany, you know, it seemed it was so painful, and and then as, at a certain point, it seemed like a something that couldn't be repaired. You know, this is forever. There's a East, Ber East Berlin, East Germany, West Germany. Okay, certain conditions obtain. Well, if you look around, that's all that's happening. Now, now, that's the other insight that comes out of impermanence. Impermanence is, has a lot of... It opens the doors to all kinds of profundity. But we have to really get, our, get into the impermanence part. 
one of the things that comes out of it is you see the interrelatedness of everything. That is, cause and effect is not one way, it's reciprocal. Everything is influencing everything else. And so there's this incredible exchange of energy going on, whether it's a person, whatever you want to delimit and focus on, and in a sense create the illusion that there's something stable. But as you start to look at it, uh, it's ecology is, an, is, uh, is there's now a movement within the Buddhist teaching um, by some of the teachers, uh, Buddhist teachers, Teach Nhat Han is the most well-known, but there are others, who are seeing that the teachings of dependent co-origination, that is, that if you get, have this, then you get that. If you don't have this, you don't get that. That everything is, arises because of a set of causes and conditions. Nothing stands in and of itself. Whether it's a person or an institution or the, the Berlin Wall or whatever you want to point to, everything is this process of arising and passing away in, patterned, in, in, a, in a way that's patterned so that certain causes and conditions help produce something. But since everything is impermanent, those causes and conditions must change at some point, at which point that which arose because those causes and conditions also fall away, because they, they don't have the support anymore. So it's a, a, a wonderful way of understanding that it's one planet, that we're all totally interrelated, that we're related to the earth and to the water and uh, to the air, and to, that we can't play, that it's a game, it's ignorance to think that we can conquer nature. You know, that's the kind of experimental science model. It turns out, or as one, one of the founders of experimental method said, uh, science's job is to torture the truth out of nature. What an image. And we've been doing it. Okay, at a certain point, it turns out we're torturing ourselves. Well, we're finding that out now. That as you sort of, you see, if you pollute the air and the water, and let's say you do that where other people live, poor people live over there. Like when I was in Korea, the Koreans were taking on work that the Japanese wouldn't do. Jap- they would kind of, the Koreans were willing to take it on. It would pollute Korea. They didn't care as long as they got paid. But the point is, as this goes on, there's no place to hide. You can't hide if you're a rich person because everything is interrelated and at a certain point it comes back to you. you know? And so it's taking a long time for the planet to learn this and we don't learn it for one obvious reason, incredible greed. We already know enough. See, the, imp- the applications of what we're learning are all over the place. They're, they have tremendous political implications right now or ecological. I would just call it sane. We already know. We don't need to do all these studies. We c- we're destroying ourselves. How can you live properly as a human being if you destroy uh, food and water and air? I mean, where do we think we're going to live from? Okay, but we don't stop. We do more research and we make modest grants and legislature. We don't stop because there's too much money involved in the things that cause pollution. Who wants to stop? You do it, but I'm not going to do it because I'm not ready to be unemployed or whatever it is. And so the greed doesn't allow us to fully learn this lesson. And the question is, do we learn it in time or do we just destroy ourselves? I mean, it happens. Now, maybe it's just part of the natural cycle of this planet ending. I don't know. And that's how it ends. But so the impermanence leads to wherever you look, you can see it. It's not, it's special and it's not. It's very ordinary. But what we're trying to do is not only to perceive it, but we're trying to learn how to live, to dance with it. 
That is, if that's the music, we have to learn how to dance to that music. Because it doesn't look like there's a choice. That is, there's no self that can change it and intervene on your behalf. I think I've decided to live until I'm 105. Fine, you can decide that, but you're going to die you don't know when. So part of what we're doing is the perception is not just uh, academic. We're trying to see this law, if it's truly so, so that our, our life becomes more real. That means it's in accordance, it's coordinated with the way things are, rather than living in illusions all the time, which don't work. And we use as our main classroom our own mind and our own body. I don't think the lessons are learned deeply enough unless you do that. You can study history and see you know, the rise and fall of civilizations. We still keep doing the same things. And for each individual, it's a question, can you, can you actually change? Is it possible to learn so that you don't do certain things that cause harm to yourself and others? It's a real question. The practice, the teachings of the Buddha is saying yes. And as you all know, it's not going to be handed to us. We have to develop strong samadhi. We need to have develop, improve our, the quality of our ethical life. If we're being corrupt in all kinds of areas, but we want to get strong samadhi and wisdom, it's not going to happen. So we have to learn how to, how to speak correctly, how to act correctly, how to use money, how to use sexual energy, how to care for the body. This is all, it's not enlightenment. It's just worldly know-how, worldly wisdom as a foundation for being able to penetrate more deeply and see this so that we learn. The main thing is that we learn and, and let go. And whatever helps us do that is, is dharma. So it's in that sense, it's a natural science, just as you might say biology is. It's a, we're studying the laws of nature, but, we're, but we are, the, the student is not exempt from the laws. The student is manifesting the same laws. In fact, the student and the, you, we're the whole thing, our practices. Has anyone seen impermanence, even a little bit? I, I mean, not in a general way. We all know that things are changing, but what Greg was getting at. Has anyone seen any of that? Enough so that you're perceiving it perhaps a little bit in ways that you normally wouldn't because you haven't been interested. We're switching from content to process. Yes. Really, kind of defense, I think, whatever it was, 
began to take place, and that I was the author mm-hmm. of that. And then I just began to see that seeing the grafting and seeing that I was the author of it, that it didn't necessarily need to be that I was the determinant. Did any of it come up as a memory? It came up, not in terms of an event. I've only been told certain things happened to me and I've never known the cause of this condition, but I came up with simply the sort of internal sense of this occurring, sort of a, a, a grasping and a holding on to a tightness. Yes. Seeing that with my inner eye, I guess, like <laughs> something, because I began to identify with something that I've always felt was outside. But you see, also factually, that event is over. Right? It ended a long time ago. But the memory of it can be held on to, and it can get between us and the present time. And so that's another. Uh, Again, that's uh, resisting the way things are. So impermanence also has good news sometimes. Pain ends. That pain ended, really. But the memory of it is being held. And of course, it has a powerful effect. We all have traumas like that. Now, the practice, it comes to the surface. To sit is an invitation for things to start to reveal themselves. If you don't want to know about this stuff, please don't meditate. Don't fold your legs. Don't come here, because this place is an invitation for, okay, I'm ready now, let it come. And little by little, at its own rate, depending on how you practice and what it is, how much fear there is and so forth, your willingness to work with fear, energy levels, it starts to come up. And so the whole point is for it to reveal itself. It's the only way we can get free of it. So it's a purification process. It has to be dredged up, observed, understood, assimilated, and let go of. And then the energy that's held captive in that process is then yours. It's free energy now, again, to be used as you see fit. You could use it again in some other goofy way, or you could put it, use it in some... Now, what I would suggest is reinvest it in the practice. You could use it to reinvest in your bank account. I would say reinvest it in your practice. Of course, I do have a bias. your bank account is that great, by all means, then do that. I haven't found it to be that great. It's okay to have some, but... Anyone else, just in general, about this impermanence contemplation? Anything you could say about it? Give me some sense of how it's going for you. I tried to be a little creative when I was... um, I I walked each morning up a, a fairly steep hill and then walk around the top of it where the, there are the rolling, you know, little differences in elevation. And I just, I realized at, at one point when I, I usually try to breathe, you know, walking and breathing, and so I'm at a fa- fairly fast pace, but I'm, I consider myself doing some kind of walking meditation. You're in touch with the breath as you're walking. That's right. But I realized that as I was going up the hill, the angle of my body to the, to the ground changed because mm-hmm. I was staying perpendicular to some central place. And going up the hill, I sort of leaned forward. And going down the hill, I sort of leaned back. 
That's Why right. Sort of noticed it, and I, you know, I really paid attention to it, and I really noticed its impermanence. And then, what the mind started doing was noticing, ah, here comes a little hill, so I guess I'm going to be leaning back pretty soon. You know, right. so all, the mind just took over trying to plan what impermanence was coming up. <laughs> um, that's why I noticed that and was amused. But I mean, the. It was, it was good practice. I really felt like oh, I, sure. Um, it's everywhere. It, it took a lot of um, a lot of uh, concentration, sort of like the walking meditation that we do here, to really notice right now what is my the angle like. You know, am I leaning back or a little bit forward or whatever? So it, it was good concentration. When, when your mind was kind of planning it all out and becoming, yeah. was there any greed in that? You may not remember, but. You know, it's, it's like you've, you've locked on to something, and now you really want to milk it for all you can get. Well, it, it's my old friend trying to control the world. I see. And that's, that's what, what was happening. My, my mind was trying to say, okay, let's plan now so that we'll, we won't be surprised. Let's plan so that... Um, Catch that impermanence. Under, right, it's under control, under my control. That's what I felt was happening. Yeah. Okay, that's there. See it. So then that usually re- returns you to a, a more simpler just seeing it, just perception. Greg, you know, with these breaths, like in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, it's not, we don't need anything extravagant or elegant or, it's just attention, attention, attention. It will grow out of the attention. But, yes? Mm-hmm. Great. Okay, now, you see, once you see that, then do a lot of that. There's, because the lesson can be learned anywhere. It's what, is, what the Buddha referred to as an ocean of impermanence. Like the taste of the ocean is always salt, right? You take it, a cup here or a cup there, so you're always going to get salt in it. Wherever you taste is impermanence. So, it, for you, it's thought. Now, each one has its own value. Thought is particularly powerful once you start. First of all, your relationship to thinking changes. You'll see what thoughts are, these packages of energy that arise and pass away. What it can help you with is to not get so attached to thinking. So when thoughts arise, you'll know that it's a thought. It doesn't mean it's worthless. It means that it's a thought. Do you see what I'm getting at? Whereas if there's no sense of impermanence, the illusion that we identify with the thought as being what the thought says it is, or as the description is never the described. You know, clock, it's not that thought, clock, is not the clock. Okay, so we have a lot of stuff going through our head. Now, it's not that they're, obviously, they're very powerful. Thoughts get translated into forms. We make buildings out of them, and wars out of them, and religions out of them. But when you start to see that a thought is just a thought, it comes and goes, you start to learn about the true nature of thinking. Then you can use thinking, but less and less will it be in control of you. Well, that's a big one. How much suffering comes from having unwanted thoughts? Huge. How, many, how often do we get caught in our thoughts? Mistaking them for something, for something. So I, now, but more generally, you found that of the contemplations, that was the one of direct contemplation of the mind, that that one you have an affinity with, you know? You like it, it holds your attention, and you're beginning to see arising and passing away. You'll see everything there. 
That one, once you get onto that one, it makes it pretty easy to see anatta, because self is put together largely by thoughts. I'm a this and I'm a that, verbal conclusions. I used to be, I am, I will be. Full speed ahead. And you're with the breath while you're doing that. Now, that was my question, good. And if you don't need it, if the day comes, you don't find then just be with the thinking. The key thing is the seeing, the mindfulness. And the breath can be very helpful. I never could do it before. Without the... Mm-hmm. I understand. Some people are... Fi- one other way in which a number of people are reporting its help is working with physical pain. Being able to look or, or uh, things like fear. It's as if the breath soothes what's happening while you're observing it. Makes it easier to be with it in a, in a consistent way. What? Anyone else seen anything on the 13th? Don't worry about the 14th of fading, you know. That comes out of, it, out of seeing impermanence. As you start to see arising and passing away enough and it becomes internalized, it becomes harder and harder to get attached to things. You may even want, wish you could get attached, and you can't. You should be so lucky. But it does happen. Again, it's not saying you can't enjoy the thing. The suffering comes not from the thing, but from the, the way in which we relate to it. We relate to it as if it's something that's permanent and won't change. And since it does change, it's not a question of opinion, it does change. So then our way of relating to it is faulty. How can it produce anything but suffering? It becomes easier to live. Separations become easier. You understand it's part of life. You feel the pain of it. It's not to deny anything. But more and more as we begin to see that it's normal to come together and go apart, then we're able to do that more. We come, the coming together can be more poignant and rich. And the, and the, coming, and the going apart is also a part of, obviously, it's part, as much a part of the life as coming together. So we begin to live the way things are. It's just a lot easier. To whatever degree I've been able to do it, it has made my life smoother. Anything else before we ring the bell and you're sentenced to oblivion? <laughs> Your ideas are <laughs> terminated. few moments of silence. <laughs> 